Welcome to the 39th reading of John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, translated by Henry Beveridge. We are continuing this reading with Book 4, Chapter 1, Section 3. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more, at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider, pray, and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, So also he says to everyone, Give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now to SWRB's reading of Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, which we hope you will find to be a great blessing and which we pray draws you near to the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by him. John 14:6. Section 3. Moreover, this article of the Creed relates in some measure to the external church, that every one of us must maintain brotherly concord with all the children of God, give due authority to the church, and in short, conduct ourselves as sheep of the flock. And hence the additional expression, the, quote, communion of saints, unquote, for this clause, though usually omitted by ancient writers, must not be overlooked, as it admirably expresses the quality of the church, just as if it had been said that saints are united in the fellowship of Christ on this condition, that all the blessings which God bestows upon them are mutually communicated to each other. This, however, is not incompatible with a diversity of graces, for we know that the gifts of the Spirit are variously distributed, nor is it incompatible with civil order, by which each is permitted privately to possess his own means, it being necessary for the preservation of peace among men that distinct rights of property should exist among them. Still a community is asserted such as Luke describes when he says, quote, The multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul, unquote. Acts 4, verse 32, and Paul, when he reminds the Ephesians, quote, There is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, unquote. Ephesians 4, verse 4. For if they are truly persuaded that God is the common Father of them all, and Christ their common head, they cannot but be united together in brotherly love and mutually impart their blessings to each other then it is of the highest importance for us to know what benefit thence redounds to us. For when we believe the church, it is in order that we may be firmly persuaded that we are its members. In this way, our salvation rests on a foundation so firm and sure that though the whole fabric of the world were to give way, it could not be destroyed. First, it stands with the election of God and cannot change or fail any more than his eternal providence. Next, it is in a manner united with the stability of Christ who will no more allow his faithful followers to be dissevered from him than he would allow his own members to be torn to pieces. We may add that so long as we continue in the bosom of the church, we are sure that the truth will remain with us. Lastly, we feel that we have an interest in such promises as these. Quote, in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance. Unquote. Joel 2, verse 32. And Obadiah 17. Quote, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. Unquote. Psalm 46, verse 5. So available is communion with the church to keep us in the fellowship of God. In the very term communion, there is great consolation. 
because while we are assured that everything which God bestows on his members belongs to us, all the blessings conferred upon them confirm our hope. But in order to embrace the unity of the church in this manner, it is not necessary, as I have observed, to see it with our eyes or feel it with our hands. Nay, rather from its being placed in faith, we are reminded that our thoughts are to dwell upon it, as much when it escapes our perception as when it openly appears. Nor is our faith the worst for apprehending what is unknown, since we are not enjoined here to distinguish between the elect and the reprobate. This belongs not to us, but to God only. But to feel firmly assured in our minds that all those who, by the mercy of God the Father, through the efficacy of the Holy Spirit, have become partakers with Christ, are set apart as the proper and peculiar possession of God, and that, as we are of the number, we are also partakers of this great grace. Section 4. But as it is now our purpose to discourse of the visible church, let us learn from her single title of Mother how useful, nay, how necessary the knowledge of her is, since there is no other means of entering into life unless she conceive us in the womb, and give us birth unless she nourish us at her breasts, and in short, keep us under her charge and government until divested of mortal flesh we become like the angels. Matthew 22, verse 30. For our weakness does not permit us to leave the school until we have spent our whole lives as scholars. Moreover, beyond the pale of the church, no forgiveness of sins, no salvation can be hoped for, as Isaiah and Joel testify. Isaiah 37, verse 32, and Joel 2, verse 32. To their testimony, Ezekiel subscribes when he declares, quote, They shall not be in the assembly of my people, neither shall they be written in the writing of the house of Israel. Unquote. Ezekiel 13, verse 9. As, on the other hand, those who turn to the cultivation of true piety are said to inscribe their names among the citizens of Jerusalem. For which reason it is said in the psalm, quote, Remember me, O Lord, with the favor that thou bearest unto thy people. O visit me with thy salvation, that I may see the good of thy chosen, that I may rejoice in the gladness of thy nation, that I may glory with thine inheritance. Unquote. Psalm 106, verses 4 and 5. By these words, the paternal favor of God and the special evidence of spiritual life are confined to his peculiar people, and hence the abandonment of the church is always fatal. Section 5. But let us proceed to a full exposition of this view. Paul says that our Savior, quote, ascended far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Unquote. Ephesians 4, verses 10 through 13. We see that God, who might perfect his people in a moment, chooses not to bring them to manhood in any other way than by the education of the church. We see the mode of doing it expressed. The preaching of celestial doctrine is committed to pastors. We see that all without exception are brought into the same order, that they may, with meek and docile spirit, allow themselves to be governed by teachers appointed for this purpose. Isaiah had long before given this as the characteristic of the kingdom of Christ. Quote, My spirit that is upon thee, and my words which I have put in thy mouth, shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed's seed saith the Lord from henceforth and forevermore." Unquote. Isaiah 59 verse 21 
Hence it follows that all who reject the spiritual food of the soul divinely offered to them by the hands of the church deserve to perish of hunger and of famine. God inspires us with faith, but it is by the instrumentality of his gospel, as Paul reminds us, quote, faith cometh by hearing, unquote. Romans 10, verse 17. God reserves to himself the power of maintaining it, but it is by the preaching of the gospel, as Paul also declares, that he brings it forth and unfolds it. With this view, it pleased him in ancient times that sacred meetings should be held in the sanctuary, that consent and faith might be nourished by the doctrine proceeding from the lips of the priest. Those magnificent titles, as when the temple is called God's rest, his sanctuary, his habitation, and when he is said to dwell between the cherubims, Psalm 132, verses 13 and 14, and 80, verse 1, are used for no other purpose than to procure respect, love, reverence, and dignity to the ministry of heavenly doctrine, to which otherwise the appearance of an insignificant human being might be in no slight degree derogatory. Therefore to teach us that the treasure offered to us in earthen vessels is of inestimable value, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7, God himself appears, and, as the author of this ordinance, requires his presence to be recognized in his own institution. Accordingly, after forbidding his people to give heed to familiar spirits, wizards, and other superstitions, Leviticus 19, verses 30 and 31, he adds that he will give what ought to be sufficient for all, namely, that he will never leave them without prophets. For, as he did not commit his ancient people to angels, but raised up teachers on the earth to perform a truly angelical office, so he is pleased to instruct us in the present day by human means. But as anciently he did not confine himself to the law merely, but added priests as interpreters, from whose lips the people might inquire after his true meaning, so in the present day he would not only have us to be attentive to reading, but has appointed masters to give us their assistance. In this there is a twofold advantage. For, on the one hand, he, by an admirable test, proves our obedience when we listen to his ministers just as we would to himself, while, on the other hand, he consults our weakness in being pleased to address us after the manner of men by means of interpreters, that he may thus allure us to himself instead of driving us away by his thunder. How well this familiar mode of teaching is suited to us, all the godly are aware, from the dread with which the divine majesty justly inspires them. Those who think that the authority of the doctrine is impaired by the insignificance of the men who are called to teach betray their ingratitude. For among the many noble endowments with which God has adorned the human race, one of the most remarkable is that he deigns to consecrate the mouths and tongues of men to his service, making his own voice to be heard in them. Wherefore, let us not on our part decline obediently to embrace the doctrine of salvation, delivered by his command and mouth. Because, although the power of God is not confined to external means, he has, however, confined us to his ordinary method of teaching, which method, when fanatics refuse to observe, they entangle themselves in many fatal snares. Pride, or fastidiousness, or emulation, induces many to persuade themselves that they can profit sufficiently by reading and meditating in private, and thus to despise public meetings and deem preaching superfluous. But since as much as in them lies, they lose, or burst the sacred bond of unity, none of them escapes the just punishment of this impious divorce, but become fascinated with pestiferous errors and the foulest delusions. Wherefore, in order that the pure simplicity of the faith may flourish among us, let us not decline to use this exercise of piety, which God by his institution of it has shown to be necessary, and which he so highly recommends. 
None, even among the most petulant of men, would venture to say that we are to shut our ears against God. But in all ages, prophets and pious teachers have had a difficult contest to maintain with the ungodly whose perseverance cannot submit to the yoke of being taught by the lips and ministry of men. This is just the same as if they were to destroy the impress of God as exhibited to us in doctrine. For no other reason were believers anciently enjoined to seek the face of God in the sanctuary, Psalm 105, verse 4, an injunction so often repeated in the law, than because the doctrine of the law and the exhortations of the prophets were to them a living image of God. Thus Paul declares that in his preaching the glory of God shone in the face of Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. The more detestable are the apostates who delight in producing schisms in churches, just as if they wished to drive the sheep from the fold and throw them into the jaws of wolves. Let us hold agreeably to the passage we quoted from Paul, that the church can only be edified by external preaching, and that there is no other bond by which the saints can be kept together than by uniting with one consent to observe the order which God has appointed in his church for learning and making progress. For this end, especially as I have observed, believers were anciently enjoined under the law to flock together to the sanctuary. For when Moses speaks of the habitation of God, he at the same time calls it the place of the name of God, the place where he will record his name, Exodus 20, verse 24, thus plainly teaching that no use could be made of it without the doctrine of godliness. And there can be no doubt that, for the same reason, David complains with great bitterness of soul, that by the tyrannical cruelty of his enemies he was prevented from entering the tabernacle. Psalm 84. To many the complaint seems childish, as if no great loss were sustained, not much pleasure lost, by exclusion from the temple provided other amusements were enjoyed. David, however, laments this one deprivation as filling him with anxiety and sadness, tormenting and almost destroying him. This he does because there is nothing on which believers set a higher value than on this aid by which God gradually raises his people to heaven. For it is to be observed that he always exhibited himself to the holy patriarchs in the mirror of his doctrine in such a way as to make their knowledge spiritual. Whence the temple is not only styled his face, but also for the purpose of removing all superstition is termed his footstool. Psalm 132, verse 7, and 99, verse 5. Herein is the unity of the faith happily realized, when all from the highest to the lowest aspire to the head. All the temples which the Gentiles built to God with a different intention were a mere profanation of his worship, a profanation into which the Jews also fell, though not with equal grossness. With this Stephen upbraised them in the words of Isaiah when he says, Quote, how be it the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, and saith the prophet, Heaven is my throne, Unquote, etc. Acts 7, verse 48. For God only consecrates temples to their legitimate use by his word, and when we rashly attempt anything without his order, immediately setting out from a bad principle, we introduce adventitious fictions by which evil is propagated without measure. It was inconsiderate in Xerxes when, by the advice of the Magians, he burnt or pulled down all the temples of Greece, because he thought it absurd that God, to whom all things ought to be free and open, should be enclosed by walls and roofs, as if it were not in the power of God in a manner to descend to us, that he may be near to us, and yet neither change his place, nor affect us by earthly means, but rather by a kind of vehicles, raise us aloft to his own heavenly glory, which, with its immensity, fills all things, and in height is above the heavens. Section 6. Moreover, as at this time there is a great dispute as to the efficacy of the ministry, 
some extravagantly overrating its dignity, and others erroneously maintaining that what is peculiar to the Spirit of God is transferred to mortal man when we suppose that ministers and teachers penetrate to the mind and heart so as to correct the blindness of the one and the hardness of the other, it is necessary to place this controversy on its proper footing. The arguments on both sides will be disposed of without trouble by distinctly attending to the passages in which God, the author of preaching, connects his spirit with it, and then promises a beneficial result, or, on the other hand, to the passages in which God, separating himself from external means, claims for himself alone both the commencement and the whole course of faith. The office of the second Elias was, as Malachi declares, to, quote, turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, unquote. Malachi 4, verse 6. Christ declares that he sent the apostles to produce fruit from his labors. John 15, verse 16. What this fruit is, Peter briefly defines when he says that we are begotten again of incorruptible seed. 1 Peter 1, verse 23. Hence Paul glories that by means of the gospel he had begotten the Corinthians, who were the seals of his apostleship. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 15. Moreover, that his was not a ministry of the letter, which only sounded in the ear, but that the effectual agency of the Spirit was given to him, in order that his doctrine might not be in vain. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 2, and 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6. In this sense, he elsewhere declares that his gospel was not in word, but in power. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 5. He also affirms that the Galatians received the Spirit by the hearing of faith. Galatians 3, verse 2. In short, in several passages, he not only makes himself a fellow worker with God, but attributes to himself the providence of bestowing salvation. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 9. All these things he certainly never uttered with the view of attributing to himself one iota apart from God, as he elsewhere briefly explains. Quote, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing. Because when ye received the word of God, which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but, as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Unquote. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. Again, in another place. Quote, he that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. Unquote. Galatians 2, verse 8 and that he allows no more to ministers, is obvious from other passages. Quote, so then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Unquote. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 7. Again, quote, I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Unquote. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. And it is indeed necessary to keep these sentences in view. Since God, in describing to himself the illumination of the mind and renewal of the heart, reminds us that it is sacrilege for man to claim any part of either to himself. Still, everyone who listens with docility to the ministers whom God appoints will know by the beneficial result that for good reason God is pleased with this method of teaching and for good reason has laid believers under this modest yoke. Section 7 the judgment which ought to be formed concerning the visible church, which comes under our observation, must, I think, be sufficiently clear from what has been said. I have observed that the scriptures speak of the church in two ways. Sometimes when they speak of the church, they mean the church as it really is before God, the church into which none are admitted but those who, by the gift of adoption, are sons of God, and by the sanctification of the Spirit, true members of Christ. 
In this case, it not only comprehends the saints who dwell on the earth, but all the elect who have existed from the beginning of the world. Often, too, by the name of church is designated the whole body of mankind scattered throughout the world, who profess to worship one God and Christ, who by baptism are initiated into the faith, by partaking of the Lord's Supper, profess unity in true doctrine and charity, agree in holding the word of the Lord, and observe the ministry which Christ has appointed for the preaching of it. In this church there is a very large mixture of hypocrites, who have nothing of Christ but the name and outward appearance, of ambitious, avaricious, envious, evil-speaking men, some also of impure lives who are tolerated for a time, either because their guilt cannot be legally established, or because due strictness of discipline is not always observed. Hence, as it is necessary to believe the invisible church, which is manifest to the eye of God only, so we are also enjoined to regard this church, which is so called with reference to man, and to cultivate its communion. Section 8. Accordingly, inasmuch as it was of importance to us to recognize it, the Lord has distinguished it by certain marks, and, as it were, symbols. It is indeed the special prerogative of God to know those who are His, as Paul declares in the passage already quoted, 2 Timothy 2, verse 19. And, doubtless, it has been so provided as a check on human rashness, the experience of every day reminding us how far His secret judgments surpass our apprehension. For even those who seemed most abandoned, and who had been completely despaired of, are by His goodness recalled alive, while those who seemed most stable often fall. Hence, as Augustine says, quote, In regard to the secret predestination of God, there are very many sheep without, and very many wolves within, unquote. For he knows and has his mark on those who know neither him nor themselves. Of those, again, who openly bear his badge, his eyes alone see who of them are unfeignedly holy, and will persevere even to the end, which alone is the completion of salvation. On the other hand, foreseeing that it was in some degree expedient for us to know who are to be regarded by us as his sons, he has in this matter accommodated himself to our capacity. But as here full certainty was not necessary, he has in its place substituted the judgment of charity, by which we acknowledge all as members of the church who by confession of faith, regularity of conduct, and participation in the sacraments, unite with us in acknowledging the same God in Christ. The knowledge of his body, inasmuch as he knew it to be more necessary for our salvation, he has made known to us by sure marks. Section 9. Hence the form of the church appears and stands forth conspicuous to our view. Wherever we see the word of God sincerely preached and heard, wherever we see the sacraments administered according to the institution of Christ, there we cannot have any doubt that the church of God has some existence, since his promise cannot fail. Quote, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Unquote. Matthew 18, verse 20 but that we may have a clear summary of this subject, we must proceed by the following steps. The church universal is the multitude collected out of all nations, who, though dispersed and far distant from each other, agree in one truth of divine doctrine, and are bound together by the tie of a common religion. In this way it comprehends single churches, which exist in different towns and villages according to the wants of human society, so that each of them justly obtains the name and authority of the church and also comprehends single individuals, who by religious profession are accounted to belong to such churches, although they are in fact aliens from the church, but have not been cut off by public decision. There is, however, a slight difference in the mode of judging of individuals and of churches. 
For it may happen in practice that those whom we deem not altogether worthy of the fellowship of believers, we yet ought to treat as brethren, and regard as believers, on account of the common consent of the church, in tolerating and bearing with them in the body of Christ. Such persons we do not approve by our suffrage as members of the church, but we leave them the place which they hold among the people of God until they are legitimately deprived of it. With regard to the general body, we must feel differently. If they have the ministry of the word and honor the administration of the sacraments, they are undoubtedly entitled to be ranked with the church because it is certain that these things are not without a beneficial result. Thus we both maintain the church universal in its unity, which malignant minds have always been eager to dissever and deny not due authority to lawful assemblies distributed as circumstances require. Section 10. We have said that the symbols by which the church is discerned are the preaching of the word and the observance of the sacraments, for these cannot anywhere exist without producing fruit and prospering by the blessing of God. I say not that wherever the word is preached, fruit immediately appears, but that in every place where it is received and has a fixed abode, it uniformly displays its efficacy. Be this as it may, when the preaching of the gospel is reverently heard, and the sacraments are not neglected, there for the time the face of the church appears without deception or ambiguity, and no man may with impunity spurn her authority, or reject her admonitions, or resist her counsels, or make sport of her censures, far less revolt from her and violate her unity. See chapter 2, section 1 and 10, and chapter 8, section 12. For such is the value which the Lord sets on the communion of his church, that all who contumaciously alienate themselves from any Christian society in which the true ministry of his word and sacraments is maintained, he regards as deserters of religion. So highly does he recommend her authority that when it is violated he considers that his own authority is impaired. For there is no small weight in the designation given to her, quote, the house of God, unquote, quote, the pillar and ground of the truth, unquote. 1 Timothy 3, verse 15. By these words Paul intimates that to prevent the truth from perishing in the world, the church is its faithful guardian, because God has been pleased to preserve the pure preaching of his word by her instrumentality, and to exhibit himself to us as a parent while he feeds us with spiritual nourishment and provides whatever is conducive to our salvation. Moreover, no mean praise is conferred on the church when she is said to have been chosen and set apart by Christ as his spouse. Quote, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, unquote. Ephesians 5, verse 27, as, quote, his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all, unquote. Ephesians 1, verse 23, once it follows that revolt from the church is denial of God and Christ. Wherefore, there is the more necessity to beware of a descent so iniquitous, for seeing by it we aim as far as in us lies at the destruction of God's truth, we deserve to be crushed by the full thunder of his anger. No crime can be imagined more atrocious than that of sacrilegiously and perfidiously violating the sacred marriage which the only begotten Son of God has condescended to contract with us. Section 11. Wherefore, let these marks be carefully impressed upon our minds, and let us estimate them as in the sight of the Lord. There is nothing on which Satan is more intent than to destroy and deface one or both of them, at one time to delete and abolish these marks, and thereby destroy the true and genuine distinction of the church, at another to bring them into contempt, and so hurry us into open revolt from the church. 
To his wiles it was owing that for several ages the pure preaching of the word disappeared, and now, with the same dishonest aim, he labors to overthrow the ministry, which, however, Christ has so ordered in his church that if it is removed the whole edifice must fall. How perilous then, nay, how fatal the temptation, when we even entertain a thought of separating ourselves from that assembly in which are beheld the signs and badges which the Lord has deemed sufficient to characterize his church. We see how great caution should be employed in both respects, that we may not be imposed upon by the name of church, every congregation which claims the name must be brought to that test as to a Lydian stone. If it holds the order instituted by the Lord in word and sacraments, there will be no deception. We may safely pay it the honor due to a church. On the other hand, if it exhibit itself without word and sacraments, we must in this case be no less careful to avoid the imposture than we were to shun pride and presumption in the other. Section 12. When we say that the pure ministry of the word and pure celebration of the sacraments is a fit pledge and earnest, so that we may safely recognize a church and every society in which both exist, our meaning is that we are never to discard it so long as these remain, though it may otherwise teem with numerous faults. Nay, even in the administration of word and sacraments, defects may creep in which ought not to alienate us from its communion. For all the heads of true doctrine are not in the same position. Some are so necessary to be known that all must hold them to be fixed and undoubted as the proper essentials of religion. For instance, that God is one, that Christ is God, and the Son of God, that our salvation depends on the mercy of God, and the like. Others, again, which are the subject of controversy among the churches, do not destroy the unity of the faith. For why should it be regarded as a ground of dissension between churches, if one, without any spirit of contention or perverseness in dogmatizing, hold that the soul, in quitting the body, flies to heaven, and another, without venturing to speak positively as to the abode, holds it for certain that it lives with the Lord. The words of the Apostle are, quote, Let us therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded, and if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God will reveal this even unto you. Unquote. Philippians 3, verse 15. Does he not sufficiently intimate that a difference of opinion as to these matters, which are not absolutely necessary, ought not to be a ground of dissension among Christians? The best thing, indeed, is to be perfectly agreed, but seeing there is no man who is not involved in some mist of ignorance, we must either have no church at all, or pardon delusion in those things of which one may be ignorant, without violating the substance of religion and forfeiting salvation. Here, however, I have no wish to patronize even the minutest errors, as if I thought it right to foster them by flattery or connivance. What I say is that we are not on account of every minute difference to abandon a church, provided it retains sound and unimpaired that doctrine in which the safety of piety consists, and keep the use of the sacraments instituted by the Lord. Meanwhile, if we strive to reform what is offensive, we act in the discharge of duty. To this effect are the words of Paul, quote, If anything be revealed to another that sitteth by, let the first hold his peace, unquote. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 30. From this it is evident that to each member of the church, according to his measure of grace, the study of public edification has been assigned, provided it be done decently and in order. In other words, we must neither renounce the communion of the church, nor, continuing in it, disturb peace and discipline when duly arranged. Section 13. Our indulgence ought to extend much farther in tolerating imperfection of conduct. 
Here there is great danger of falling, and Satan employs all his machinations to ensnare us. For there always have been persons who, imbued with a false persuasion of absolute holiness, as if they had already become a kind of aerial spirits, spurn the society of all in whom they see that something human still remains. Such of old were the Cathari and the Donatists, who were similarly infatuated. Such in the present day are some of the Anabaptists, who would be thought to have made superior progress. Others again sin in this respect, not so much from that insane pride as from inconsiderate zeal, seeing that among those to whom the gospel is preached, the fruit produced is not in accordance with the doctrine. They forthwith conclude that there no church exists. The offense is indeed well founded, and it is one to which in this most unhappy age we give far too much occasion. It is impossible to excuse our accursed sluggishness, which the Lord will not leave unpunished, as he is already beginning sharply to chastise us. Woe then to us who, by our dissolute license of wickedness, cause weak consciences to be wounded. Still those of whom we have spoken sin in their turn by not knowing how to set bounds to their offense. For where the Lord requires mercy, they omit it, and give themselves up to immoderate severity. Thinking there is no church where there is not complete purity and integrity of conduct, they, through hatred of wickedness, withdraw from a genuine church, while they think they are shunning the company of the ungodly. They allege that the church of God is holy, but that they may at the same time understand that it contains a mixture of good and bad, let them hear from the lips of our Savior that parable in which he compares the church to a net in which all kinds of fishes are taken, but not separated until they are brought ashore. Let them hear it compared to a field which, planted with good seed, is, by the fraud of an enemy, mingled with tares, and is not freed of them until the harvest is brought into the barn. Let them hear and find that it is a thrashing floor in which the collected wheat lies concealed under the chaff, until, cleansed by the fanners and the sieve, it is at length laid up in the granary. If the Lord declares that the church will labor under the defect of being burdened with a multitude of wicked until the day of judgment, it is in vain to look for a church altogether free from blemish. Matthew 13. Section 14. They exclaim that it is impossible to tolerate the vice which everywhere stalks abroad like a pestilence. What if the apostle sentiment applies here also? Among the Corinthians, it was not a few that erred, but almost the whole body had become tainted. There was not one species of sin merely, but a multitude, and those not trivial errors, but some of them execrable crimes. There was not only corruption in manners, but also in doctrine. What course was taken by the Holy Apostle, in other words, by the organ of the Heavenly Spirit, by whose testimony the church stands and falls? Does he seek separation from them? Does he discard them from the kingdom of Christ? Does he strike them with the thunder of a final anathema? He not only does none of these things, but he acknowledges and heralds them as a church of Christ and a society of saints. If the church remains among the Corinthians, where envyings, divisions, and contentions rage, where quarrels, lawsuits, and avarice prevail, where a crime which even the Gentiles would execrate is openly approved, where the name of Paul, whom they ought to have honored as a father, is petulantly assailed, where some hold the resurrection of the dead in derision, though with it the whole gospel must fall, where the gifts of God are made subservient to ambition, not to charity, where many things are done, neither decently nor in order, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11, chapter 3, verse 3, chapter 5, verse 1, chapter 6, verse 7, chapter 9, verse 1, and chapter 15, verse 12. If there the church still remains, simply because the administration of word and sacrament is not rejected, 
who will presume to deny the title of church to those to whom a tenth part of these crimes cannot be imputed? How, I ask, would those who act so morosely against present churches have acted to the Galatians, who had done all but abandoned the gospel, Galatians 1, verse 6, and yet among them the same apostle found churches? Section 15. They also object that Paul sharply rebukes the Corinthians for permitting a heinous offender in their communion, and then lays down a general sentence by which he declares it unlawful even to eat bread with a man of impure life, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. Here they exclaim, If it is not lawful to eat ordinary bread, how can it be lawful to eat the Lord's bread? I admit that it is a great disgrace if dogs and swine are admitted among the children of God, much more if the sacred body of Christ is prostituted to them. And, indeed, when churches are well regulated, they will not bear the wicked in their bosom, nor will they admit the worthy and unworthy indiscriminately to that sacred feast. But because pastors are not always sedulously vigilant, are sometimes also more indulgent than they ought, or are prevented from acting so strictly as they could wish, the consequence is that even the openly wicked are not always excluded from the fellowship of the saints. This I admit to be a vice, and I have no wish to extenuate it, seeing that Paul sharply rebukes it in the Corinthians. But although the church fail in her duty, it does not therefore follow that every private individual is to decide the question of separation for himself. I deny not that it is the duty of a pious man to withdraw from all private intercourse with the wicked, and not entangle himself with them by any voluntary tie. But it is one thing to shun the society of the wicked, and another to renounce the communion of the church through hatred of them. Those who think it sacrilege to partake the Lord's bread with the wicked are in this more rigid than Paul. For when he exhorts us to pure and holy communion, he does not require that we should examine others, or that every one should examine the whole church, but that each should examine himself. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 28 and 29. If it were unlawful to communicate with the unworthy, Paul would certainly have ordered us to take heed that there were no individual in the whole body by whose impurity we might be defiled. But now that he only requires each to examine himself, he shows that it does no harm to us, though some who are unworthy present themselves along with us. To the same effect, he afterwards adds, quote, He that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself. Unquote. He says not to others, but to himself. And justly, for the right of admitting or excluding ought not to be left to the decision of individuals. Cognizance of this point, which cannot be exercised without due order, as shall afterwards be more fully shown, belongs to the whole church. It would therefore be unjust to hold any private individual as polluted by the unworthiness of another, whom he neither can nor ought to keep back from communion. Section 16. Still, however, even the good are sometimes affected by this inconsiderate zeal for righteousness, though we shall find that this excessive moroseness is more the result of pride and a false idea of sanctity than genuine sanctity itself and true zeal for it. Accordingly, those who are the most forward and, as it were, leaders in producing revolt from the church have, for the most part, no other motive than to display their own superiority by despising all other men. Well, and wisely, therefore, does Augustine say, quote, seeing that pious reason and the mode of ecclesiastical discipline ought specially to regard the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, which the Apostle enjoins us to keep by bearing with one another, 
For if we keep it not, the application of medicine is not only superfluous, but pernicious, and therefore proves to be no medicine. Those bad sons who, not from hatred of other men's iniquities, but zeal for their own contentions, attempt altogether to draw away, or at least to divide weak brethren ensnared by the glare of their name, while swollen with pride, stuffed with petulance, insidiously calumnious, and turbulently seditious, use the cloak of a rigorous severity that they may not seem devoid of the light of truth, and pervert to sacrilegiousism and purposes of excision those things which are enjoined in the Holy Scriptures, due regard being had to sincere love and the unity of peace, to correct a brother's faults by the appliance of a moderate cure." Unquote. To the pious and placid, his advice is mercifully to correct what they can, and to bear patiently with what they cannot correct, in love, lamenting, and mourning until God either reform or correct, or, at the harvest, root up the tares and scatter the chaff. Let all the godly study to provide themselves with these weapons, lest, while they deem themselves strenuous and ardent defenders of righteousness, they revolt from the kingdom of heaven, which is the only kingdom of righteousness." For as God has been pleased that the communion of his church shall be maintained in this external society, anyone who, from hatred of the ungodly, violates the bond of this society, enters on a downward course in which he incurs great danger of cutting himself off from the communion of saints. Let them reflect that in a numerous body there are several who may escape their notice, and yet are truly righteous and innocent in the eyes of the Lord. Let them reflect that of those who seem diseased, there are many who are far from taking pleasure or flattering themselves in their faults, and who, ever and anon aroused by a serious fear of the Lord, aspire to greater integrity. Let them reflect that they have no right to pass judgment on a man for one act, since the holiest sometimes make the most grievous fall. Let them reflect that in the ministry of the word and participation of the sacraments, the power to collect the church is too great to be deprived of all its efficacy by the fault of some ungodly men. Lastly, let them reflect that in estimating the church, divine is of more force than human judgment. Section 17. Since they also argue that there is good reason for the church being called holy, it is necessary to consider what the holiness is in which it excels, lest by refusing to acknowledge any church, save one that is completely perfect, we leave no church at all. It is true indeed, as Paul says, that Christ, quote, loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish, unquote. Ephesians 5, verses 25 through 27. Nevertheless, it is true that the Lord is daily smoothing its wrinkles and wiping away its spots. Hence it follows that its holiness is not yet perfect, such, then, is the holiness of the church. It makes daily progress, but is not yet perfect. It daily advances, but as yet has not reached the goal, as will elsewhere be more fully explained. Therefore, when the prophets foretell, quote, Then shall Jerusalem be holy, and there shall no strangers pass through her any more, unquote. Quote, It shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, unquote. Joel 3, verse 17, and Isaiah 35, verse 8, let us not understand it as if no blemish remained in the members of the church, but only that with their whole heart they aspire after holiness and perfect purity, and hence that purity which they have not yet fully attained is, by the kindness of God, attributed to them. 
And though the indications of such a kind of holiness existing among men are too rare, we must understand that at no period since the world began has the Lord been without his church, nor ever shall be, till the final consummation of all things. For although at the very outset the whole human race was vitiated and corrupted by the sin of Adam, yet of this kind of polluted mass he always sanctifies some vessels to honor, that no age may be left without experience of his mercy. This he has declared by sure promises, such as the following, quote, I have made a covenant with my chosen, I have sworn unto David my servant, thy seed will I establish forever, and build up thy throne to all generations, unquote. Psalm 89, verses 3 and 4, quote, The Lord hath chosen Zion, he hath desired it for his habitation, this is my rest forever, here will I dwell, unquote. Psalm 132, verses 13 and 14. Thus saith the Lord, which giveth the sun for a light by day, and the ordinances of the moon and of the stars for a light by night, which divideth the sea when the waves thereof roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, saith the Lord, then the seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. Unquote. Jeremiah 31, verses 35 and 36. Section 18. On this head, Christ himself, his apostles, and almost all the prophets have furnished us with examples. Fearful are the descriptions in which Isaiah, Jeremiah, Joel, Habakkuk, and others deplore the diseases of the church of Jerusalem. In the people, the rulers, and the priests, corruption prevailed to such a degree that Isaiah hesitates not to liken Jerusalem to Sodom and Gomorrah. Isaiah 1, verse 10. Religion was partly despised partly adulterated, while, in regard to morals, we everywhere meet with accounts of theft, robbery, perfidy, murder, and similar crimes. The prophets, however, did not therefore either form new churches for themselves or erect new altars on which they might have separate sacrifices, but whatever their countrymen might be, reflecting that the Lord had deposited his word with them and instituted the ceremonies by which he was then worshipped, they stretched out pure hands to him though amid the company of the ungodly. Certainly, had they thought that they thereby contracted any pollution, they would have died a hundred deaths sooner than suffer themselves to be dragged thither. Nothing, therefore, prevented them from separating themselves but a desire preserving unity. But if the holy prophets felt no obligation to withdraw from the church on account of the very numerous and heinous crimes, not of one or two individuals, but almost of the whole people, we arrogate too much to ourselves if we presume forthwith to withdraw from the communion of the church, because the lives of all accord not with our judgment or even with the Christian profession. Section 19. Then what kind of age was that of Christ and the apostles? Yet neither could the desperate impiety of the Pharisees, nor the dissolute licentiousness of manners which everywhere prevailed, prevent them from using the same sacred rites with the people and meeting in one common temple for the public exercises of religion. And why so, but just because they knew that those who joined in these sacred rites with a pure conscience were not at all polluted by the society of the wicked. If anyone is little moved by prophets and apostles, let him at least defer to the authority of Christ. Well, therefore, does Cyprian say, quote, Although tares or unclean vessels are seen in the church, that is no reason why we ourselves should withdraw from the church. We must only labor that we may be able to be wheat. We must give our endeavor and strive as far as we can to be vessels of gold or silver. But to break the earthen vessels belongs to the Lord alone, to whom a rod of iron has been given. Let no one arrogate to himself what is peculiar to the Son alone. 
and think himself sufficient to winnow the floor and cleanse the chaff and separate all the tares by human judgment. What depraved zeal thus assumes to itself is proud of obstinacy and sacrilegious presumption. Unquote. Let both points, therefore, be regarded as fixed. First, that there is no excuse for him who spontaneously abandons the external communion of a church in which the word of God is preached and the sacraments are administered. Secondly, that notwithstanding of the faults of a few or of many, there is nothing to prevent us from their duly professing our faith in the ordinances instituted by God, because a pious conscience is not injured by the unworthiness of another, whether he be a passer or a private individual. And sacred rites are not less pure and salutary to a man who is holy and upright from being at the same time handled by the impure. Section 20 their moroseness and pride proceed even to greater lengths. Refusing to acknowledge any church that is not pure from the minutest blemish, they take offense at sound teachers for exhorting believers to make progress, and so teaching them to groan during their whole lives under the burden of sin and flee for a pardon. For they pretend that in this way believers are led away from perfection. I admit that we are not to labor feebly or coldly in urging perfection, far less to desist from urging it, but I hold that it is a device of the devil to fill our minds with a confident belief of it while we are still in our course. Accordingly, in the creed, forgiveness of sins is appropriately subjoined to belief as to the church, because none obtain forgiveness but those who are citizens, and of the household of the church, as we read in the prophet Isaiah 33, verse 24. The first place, therefore, should be given to the building of the heavenly Jerusalem, in which God afterwards is pleased to wipe away the iniquity of all who betake themselves to it. I say, however, that the church must first be built, not that there can be any church without forgiveness of sins, but because the Lord has not promised his mercy save in the communion of saints. Therefore, our first entrance into the church and the kingdom of God is by forgiveness of sins, without which we have no covenant nor union with God. For thus he speaks by the prophet, quote, In that day I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, and with the fowls of heaven, and with the creeping things of the ground. And I will break the bow and the sword and the battle out of the earth, and will make them to lie down safely. And I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness, and in judgment, and in loving kindness, and in mercies. Unquote. Hosea 2, verses 18 and 19. We see in what way the Lord reconciles us to himself by his mercy. So in another passage, where he foretells that the people whom he had scattered in anger will again be gathered together, Quote, I will cleanse them from all their iniquity, whereby they have sinned against me. Unquote. Jeremiah 33, verse 8. Wherefore, our initiation into the fellowship of the church is, by the symbol of ablution, to teach us that we have no admission into the family of God, unless by his goodness our impurities are previously washed away. Section 21. Nor, by remission of sins, does the Lord only once for all elect and admit us into the church, but by the same means he preserves and defends us in it. For what would it avail us to receive a pardon of which we were afterwards to have no use? That the mercy of the Lord would be vain and delusive if only granted once, all the godly can bear witness. For there is none who is not conscious during his whole life of many infirmities which stand in need of divine mercy. And truly it is not without cause that the Lord promises this gift specially to his own household, nor in vain that he orders the same message of reconciliation to be daily delivered to them. 
Wherefore, as during our whole lives we carry about with us the remains of sin, we could not continue in the church one single moment were we not sustained by the uninterrupted grace of God in forgiving our sins. On the other hand, the Lord has called his people to eternal salvation, and therefore they ought to consider that pardon for their sins is always ready. Hence, let us surely hold that if we are admitted and engrafted into the body of the church, the forgiveness of sins has been bestowed and is daily bestowed on us in divine liberality through the intervention of Christ's merits and the sanctification of the Spirit. Section 22. To impart this blessing to us, the keys have been given to the church. Matthew 16, verse 19, and 18, verse 18. For when Christ gave the command to the apostles and conferred the power of forgiving sins, he not merely intended that they should loose the sins of those who should be converted from the piety to the faith of Christ, but moreover that they should perpetually perform this office among believers. This Paul teaches when he says that the embassy of reconciliation has been committed to the ministers of the church, that they may ever and anon in the name of Christ exhort the people to be reconciled to God. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 20 Therefore, in the communion of saints, our sins are constantly forgiven by the ministry of the church, when presbyters, our bishops, to whom the office has been committed, confirm pious consciences in the hope of pardon and forgiveness by the promises of the gospel, and that as well in public as in private as the case requires. For there are many who, from their infirmity, stand in need of special pacification. And Paul declares that he testified of the grace of Christ not only in the public assembly, but from house to house, reminding each individually of the doctrine of salvation. Acts 20, verses 20 and 21. Three things are here to be observed. First, whatever be the holiness which the children of God possess, it is always under the condition that so long as they dwell in a mortal body, they cannot stand before God without forgiveness of sins. Secondly, this benefit is so peculiar to the church that we cannot enjoy it unless we continue in the communion of the church. Thirdly, it is dispensed to us by the ministers and pastors of the church, either in the preaching of the gospel or the administration of the sacraments, and herein is especially manifested the power of the keys which the Lord has bestowed on the company of the faithful. Accordingly, let each of us consider it to be his duty to seek forgiveness of sins only where the Lord has placed it. Of the public reconciliation which relates to discipline, we shall speak at the proper place. Section 23. But since those frantic spirits of whom I have spoken attempt to rob the church of this the only anchor of salvation, consciences must be more firmly strengthened against this pestilential opinion. The novations in ancient times agitated the churches with this dogma. But in our day, not unlike the novations, are some of the Anabaptists, who have fallen into the same delirious dreams. For they pretend that in baptism the people of God are regenerated to a pure and angelical life, which is not polluted by any carnal defilements. But if a man sin after baptism, they leave him nothing except the inexorable judgment of God. In short, to the sinner who has lapsed after receiving grace, they give no hope of pardon because they admit no other forgiveness of sins, save that by which we are first regenerated. But although no falsehood is more clearly refuted by Scripture, yet as these men find means of imposition, as Novatus also of old had very many followers, let us briefly show how much they rave to the destruction both of themselves and others. In the first place, since by the command of our Lord the saints daily repeat this prayer, quote, Forgive us our debts, unquote. Matthew 6, verse 12, They confess that they are debtors. Nor do they ask in vain, for the Lord has only enjoined them to ask what he will give. 
Nay, while he has declared that the whole prayer will be heard by his Father, he has sealed this absolution with a peculiar promise. What more do we wish? The Lord requires of his saints confession of sins during their whole lives, and that without ceasing, and promises pardon. How presumptuous then to exempt them from sin, or when they have stumbled, to exclude them altogether from grace. Then whom does he enjoin us to pardon seventy and seven times? Is it not our brethren? Matthew 18, verse 22. And why has he so enjoined, but that we may imitate his clemency? He therefore pardons not once or twice only, but as often as, under a sense of our faults, we feel alarmed and sighing, call upon him. Section 24. And it began almost with the very first commencement of the church. The patriarchs had been circumcised, admitted to a participation in the covenant, and doubtless instructed by their father's care in righteousness and integrity when they conspired to commit fratricide. The crime was one which the most abandoned robbers would have abominated. Genesis 37, verses 18 and 28, and 34, verse 25, and 35, verse 22, and 38, verse 16 and 2 Samuel 11, verses 4 and 15, and 12, verse 13. At length, softened by the remonstrances of Judah, they sold him. This also was intolerable cruelty. Simeon and Levi took a nefarious revenge on the sons of Sychem, one, two, condemned by the judgment of their father. Reuben, with execrable lust, defiled his father's bed. Judah, when seeking to commit whoredom, sinned against the law of nature with his daughter-in-law. But so far are they from being expunged from the chosen people, that they are rather raised to be its heads. What, moreover, of David? When on the throne of righteousness, with what iniquity did he make way for blind lust by the shedding of innocent blood? He had already been regenerated, and as one of the regenerated received distinguished approbation from the Lord. But he perpetuated a crime at which even the Gentiles would have been horrified, and yet obtained pardon. And not to dwell on special examples... All the promises of divine mercy extant in the law and the prophets are so many proofs that the Lord is ready to forgive the offenses of his people. For why does Moses promise a future period when the people who had fallen into rebellion should return to the Lord? Quote, then the Lord thy God will turn thy captivity and have compassion upon thee and will return and gather thee from all the nations whither the Lord thy God hath scattered thee. Unquote. Deuteronomy 30, verse 3. Section 25. But I am unwilling to begin an enumeration which never could be finished. The prophetical books are filled with similar promises, offering mercy to a people covered with innumerable transgressions. What crime is more heinous than rebellion? It is styled divorce between God and the church, and yet by his goodness it is surmounted. They say, quote, If a man put away his wife, and she go from him and become another man's, shall he return unto her again? Shall not that land be greatly polluted? But thou hast played the harlot with many lovers, yet return again unto me, saith the Lord. Unquote. Quote, return thou backsliding Israel, saith the Lord, and I will not cause mine anger to fall upon you. For I am merciful, saith the Lord, and I will not keep anger forever. Unquote. Jeremiah 3, verses 1 and 12. And surely he could not have a different feeling who declares, Quote, I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth. Unquote. Quote, Wherefore turn yourselves and live ye, unquote. Ezekiel 18, verses 23 and 32. Accordingly, when Solomon dedicated the temple, one of the uses for which it was destined was that prayers offered up for the pardon of sins might there be heard. Quote, if they sin against thee, for there is no man that sinneth not, 
and thou be angry with them, and deliver them to the enemy, so that they carry them away captive unto the land of the enemy, far and near. Yet if they shall bethink themselves in the land whither they are carried captives, and repent, and make supplication unto thee in the land of them that carried them captives, saying, We have sinned, and have done perversely, we have committed wickedness, and so return unto thee with all their heart, and with all their soul, in the land of their enemies which led them away captive, and pray unto thee towards their land, which thou gavest unto their fathers, the city which thou hast chosen, and the house which I have built for thy name, then hear thou their prayer, and their supplication in heaven, thy dwelling place, and maintain their cause, and forgive thy people that have sinned against thee, and all their transgressions wherein they have transgressed against thee. Unquote. 1 Kings 8, verses 46-50 through 50. Nor in vain in the law did God ordain a daily sacrifice for sins. Had he not foreseen that his people were constantly to labor under the disease of sin, he never would have appointed these remedies. Section 26. Did the advent of Christ, by which the fullness of grace was displayed, deprive believers of this privilege of supplicating for the pardon of their sins? If they offended against the Lord, were they not to obtain any mercy? What were it but to say that Christ came not for the salvation, but for the destruction of his people, if the divine indulgence in pardoning sin, which was constantly provided for the saints under the Old Testament, is now declared to have been taken away? But if we give credit to the Scriptures when distinctly proclaiming that in Christ alone the grace and loving kindness of the Lord have fully appeared, the riches of His mercy been poured out, reconciliation between God and man accomplished, Titus 2, verse 11, and 3, verse 4, 2 Timothy 1, verses 9 and 10, let us not doubt that the clemency of our Heavenly Father, instead of being cut off or curtailed, is in much greater exuberance, nor are proofs of this wanting. Peter, who had heard our Savior declare that he who did not confess his name before men would be denied before the angels of God, denied him thrice in one night and not without execration. Yet he is not denied pardon. Mark 8, verse 38. Those who lived disorderly among the Thessalonians, though chastised, are still invited to repentance. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6. Not even is Simon Magus thrown into despair. He is rather told to hope since Peter invites him to have recourse to prayer. Acts 8, verse 22. Section 27. What shall we say to the fact that occasionally whole churches have been implicated in the grossest sins, and yet Paul, instead of giving them over to destruction, rather mercifully extricated them? The defection of the Galatians was no trivial fault. The Corinthians were still less excusable, the iniquities prevailing among them being more numerous and not less heinous, yet neither are excluded from the mercy of the Lord. Nay, the very persons who had sinned above others in uncleanness and fornication are expressly invited to repentance. The covenant of the Lord remains, and ever will remain, inviolable, that covenant which he solemnly ratified with Christ, the true Solomon, and his members in these words. Quote, if his children forsake my law, and walk not in my judgments, if they break my statutes, and keep not my commandments, then will I visit their transgression with the rod, and their iniquities with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness will I not utterly take from him. Unquote. Psalm 89, verses 30 through 33. In short, by the very arrangement of the creed, we are reminded that forgiveness of sins always resides in the Church of Christ. For after the church is, as it were, constituted, forgiveness of sins is subjoined. Section 28. 
Some persons who have somewhat more discernment, seeing that the dogma of Novatus is so clearly refuted in Scripture, do not make every fault unpardonable, but that voluntary transgression of the law into which a man falls knowingly and willingly. Those who speak thus allow pardon to those sins only that have been committed through ignorance. But since the Lord has in the law ordered some sacrifices to be offered in expiation of the voluntary sins of believers, and others to redeem sins of ignorance, Leviticus chapter 4, how perverse is it to concede no expiation to a voluntary sin? I hold nothing to be more plain than that the one sacrifice of Christ avails to remit the voluntary sins of believers, the Lord having attested this by carnal sacrifices as emblems. Then how is David, who was so well instructed in the law, to be excused by ignorance? Did David, who was daily punishing it in others, not know how heinous a crime murder and adultery was? Did the patriarchs deem fratricide a lawful act? Had the Corinthians made so little proficiency as to imagine that God was pleased with lasciviousness, impurity, whoredom, hatred, and strife? Was Peter, after being so carefully warned, ignorant how heinous it was to forswear his master? Therefore let us not, by our malice, shut the door against the divine mercy when so benignly manifested. Section 29 I am not unaware that by the sins which are daily forgiven to believers, ancient writers have understood the lighter errors which creep in through the infirmity of the flesh, while they thought that the formal repentance which was then exacted for more heinous crimes was no more to be repeated than baptism. This opinion is not to be viewed as if they wished to plunge those into despair who had fallen from their first repentance, or to extenuate those errors as if they were of no account before God, for they knew that the saints often stumble through unbelief that superfluous oaths occasionally escape them, that they sometimes boil with anger, nay, break out into open invectives and labor besides under other evils, which are in no slight degree offensive to the Lord. But they so called them to distinguish them from public crimes, which came under the cognizance of the church and produced much scandal. The very difficulty they had in pardoning those who had done something that called for ecclesiastical animadversion was not because they thought it difficult to obtain pardon from the Lord, but by the severity they wished to deter others from rushing precipitately into crimes, which by their demerit would alienate them from the communion of the church. Still, the word of the Lord, which here ought to be our only rule, certainly prescribes greater moderation since it teaches that the rigor of discipline must not be stretched so far as to overwhelm with grief the individual for whose benefit it should specially be designed, 2 Corinthians 2, verse 7, as we have above discoursed at greater length. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts are on the web at www swrb.com We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue Edmonton AB Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com or 
swrb at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list. So once you've sent us your email address, you will be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address you have supplied. Your email information will be kept confidential, and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb at swrb.com with the word remove in the subject line. Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the new free information resources, free MP3s, free electronic books and text, etc. SWRB makes available on the web, as well as, at times, to our best discounts and super specials. We also encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends, but we only authorize this as long as the full content of the message, including the header and trailer, is not altered in any way and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. Thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading, and remember that Isaiah 26.3 states, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And 2 Corinthians 13.11 concludes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you.